I'm reading the passage this morning from Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let no one accuse, For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Good morning again. Happy official start of summer. We got a great passage to just kick us off. Happy, encouraging passage. Actually, around our house, the first day of summer means a birthday party. Um, Our Adelia turned three on the 20th, and so always, right around the first day of summer, official day of summer, we get to have a birthday, and that means Grace gets to throw a birthday party for our girls. And... uh, I, you know, we threw a birthday. I, Grace is clearly the one who throws birthday parties uh, for our girls. Um, I'm around, so that's good. Grace is an excellent hostess at these parties. She, she designs and decorates things really well, and she always does a really nice job of finding some way to honor uh, our girls uh, or to honor the person who's the party is for. And that's one of the things that I love about my wife of now almost 10 years, which is pretty cool. Ten years ago, when we were getting ready to get married, I did not know that she was going to be a great party hostess. That was one of the things that I did not know about her, uh, among many others. Basically, I knew she loved the Lord, I knew she could sing, uh, I knew she was good at design, and I knew she was beautiful, and that's kind of what I needed to know, and uh, we were good. Ten years later, I've gotten to know her quite a bit better. I know a lot more about her. I didn't know at the time that she would be a great mom. I had my suspicions, but I didn't know that. 
I didn't know how sacrificial she would be. And one of, those, one of the pictures that reminds me of that is Adelaide's birth. So if you were here three years ago, you'll remember that. I didn't know how much wisdom she had and how, much, how that would come out with our girls and with other women and given the opportunity she's had to counsel other women. I didn't know how much birth would mean to her and that God would call her into supporting and caring for moms who are giving birth. There were a few things that I knew about grace, but there were a lot of things I didn't know about grace and that I couldn't have known. And that's the way it is with people, right? We get to know them the more we get to love them. So we love them. It requires love and faithfulness and time with someone for us to get to know them well. The more we care for them, the more we are faithful and loyal to them, the more time we spend with them, the more we get to know them. So God's given me the grace to be able to be with Grace for the last 10 years. So I've gotten to know her pretty well. She's not perfect. She's had her struggles and we've had our struggles. But the more I've gotten to know her, the more impressed I am and the more thankful I am for her. She reveals the character of God to me and I'm blessed to be able to be with her and to be her husband. I wouldn't know her well if I had not spent the last 10 years with her or if I had been inattentive for those 10 years or if I had been unfaithful. Unfaithfulness is hard because it draws our attentions away from the one who deserves our attention and we give it to somebody else. If I was unfaithful to grace, that means I would be getting to know someone else the way I should be getting to know grace. That means I can't and wouldn't be able to get to know grace the way that I should. To know someone, again, requires love and faithfulness over time. In our passage today, Hosea is relating a message from God saying, Israel, you do not know me. They've been happy to receive gifts from God. They've been happy to receive his blessings. But despite all of that, and despite all of the ways that God has pursued them, Israel does not know God. God has treated Israel like his wife, but Israel is unfaithful. They have pursued other gods, and so the nation does not know God. In the same way, God is pursuing us. So God's question for us today is the same. Do we know God I do want to warn you before we get into the passage that this passage, and so this sermon, is, like the rest of the first part of Hosea, can be graphic. So the sermon will at points be graphic. I just want you to know that. Don't be surprised. This is Hosea. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for the ways that you pursue us. The church is the bride of Christ, the one that Jesus will present as holy and blameless because of his sacrificial love that has washed us and because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives. You called us, you sought us out, and you're constantly giving your gifts to us and making us new. We are blessed to be your people. We pray today that as we come to this hard passage, that you would reveal yourself as a loving, good, faithful God who has given us all we need to know you in the person of of Jesus in your creation, in the scriptures, and in the church. Make us look like you. Help us to make you known and use us to bear fruit for your kingdom. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, Dad has been taking us through the first three chapters of Hosea. Uh, and kind of central to the first three chapters are this image of Hosea the prophet marrying an unfaithful wife, a wife he knows is going to be unfaithful because God calls him to do that. Uh, and this is a picture of God's relationship with the northern kingdom of Israel. God is the faithful husband. Israel is the adulterous wife. Chapter 1 talks about God's scandalous love in continuing to pursue Israel. And Hosea participates in that scandalous love by remaining faithful to Gomer, his adulterous wife. Ultimately, God says there will be consequences for Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel is going to be removed from the land. But God's outrageous grace will win out when God restores his covenant with Israel. Chapters 2 and 3 continue to deal with God's grace. Although Israel continues to have a wayward heart. So this wayward heart, God gives us his gifts. And he gives us hard gifts, uncomfortable gifts. Uh, hedges, poverty, and the desert to draw Israel back to himself. But Israel continues to search out other lovers. Ultimately, God promises that he will give Israel the gift of himself as husband. He promises that Israel will know Yahweh, know in the biblical sense, as a husband and wife know each other, a knowledge based on faithfulness, love, and intimacy. That's the first three chapters. When we come to chapter four, as Terry just read for us, we've entered a whole new ballgame. No more object lesson, no more Hosea Gomer picture for us. Now we're in a courtroom and Israel is on trial. God is both prosecutor and judge, and Israel is faithless, sinful, and self-destructive. To open the courtroom proceedings, God summarizes his whole case in verses 1 to 3. Israel should know me. They should be faithful and loving. And instead, they live a crazy, sinful, violent lifestyle. And so, creation is suffering because Israel is such a mess. And Dad talked last week about what it means to know someone in the biblical sense. That's in the context of scriptures, uh, when it's a context of a man and a woman, that's usually sexual intimacy. God says, you will know me in that kind of sense, with that kind of intimacy, except much more. Uh, God will know us and we will know God in a much fuller sense than a husband and wife know each other. In chapter 4, again, that's chapter 2. Chapter 4, God says, Israel does not know him. Israel seems to have something like information about him. Maybe they read God's um, online dating profile or something. So they've got some key, key ingredients. Maybe God's height. They know God has brown, brown hair with brown eyes or something like that. But that's about what they know. They can use language to talk about God but it's not like they've been married for 30 years or in Israel's case with God, something like 800 years. Um, they don't know God the way they should. Again, they have information, but not knowledge. That'd be like me saying, oh, I know LeBron James, we're buddies, because I know that he's six foot eight, he's won a couple NBA titles and his favorite color is red. That's not the same thing, that's not knowledge. 
Our world is full of information. I, you and I can hop on the interwebs right now and get information about anything. I could tell you how to build a skyscraper. I could tell you what trees to plant in your backyard. I could tell you all about Methodist theology. doesn't mean I know anything about them. Because I haven't spent any time with them. I've never built a skyscraper. I've never spent time in the earth and like investigating trees. I don't know. And I haven't spent any time with Methodist theology either. I haven't spent careful time with them, caring about them, being changed by them, learning to submit myself to their well-being. That's what it takes to get to know someone. You have to submit to them. You have to love them. You have to be faithful to them. Knowing someone requires loving, attentive, faithful submission. Israel was sacrificing to God, as we've seen, not on the terms that he asked, and they weren't only sacrificing to Yahweh, the true God, they were also sacrificing to other gods. They were running around hedging their bets. They were unfaithful, adulterous. So no love, no faithfulness, no knowledge. They don't know God. Again, knowing God requires love. It requires time, attention. It means setting your priorities around Him. It means spending time in the scriptures, not only so that we can get answers for our lives, but also just to get to know Him. It means attentive, prayerful listening to God alone and in others, and with, in community with others. It means worshiping God together with people who are different from us and can, who can show us characteristics and parts of God that we wouldn't have seen on our own. It means caring about the people and the things that He cares about, like the lost, the oppressed, His creation, those with needs, caring about peace, the unity of His church, honoring His Son Jesus. These are things that God cares about. These are things that should be characterizing us, that we should care about. Over time, it will, it will mean submitting our lives to Him in new ways, more sacrificial ways. But because we know God, we'll know that the sacrifice is worth it. Whatever we're giving up is nothing in comparison with following and knowing God. One of the things about loving and knowing someone is that you start to act like them. I am changed because I've been married to Grace for 10 years. If I hadn't been married to her for 10 years, I'm sure I'd be still wearing old flannel, baggy flannel shirts with big baggy cords um, with long hair and a big beard. That's pretty much what I would look like. Knowing Grace, however, has changed me. I care more about the things that she cares about. I also care about birth and many other things that I wouldn't care about otherwise. I wouldn't know her. I wouldn't care about the things she cares about. That's one analogy, but knowing and loving God changes us, obviously, in significantly more ways and in significantly deeper ways than our spouses change us. If we really know God, we start to look like God. We start to take on His characteristics. God makes us new if we really know Him and if we're not just relying on our information about Him. Israel was content to be rich and to sacrifice to a bunch of different gods. But they didn't know God, and so they didn't look like Him. God is consistently characterized in the Old Testament by His chesed love 
and his faithfulness. Chesed, this, this word for love in the Old Testament, again, it's a huge word. It means a whole bunch of things that we can't really put into English very well. Uh, his covenant faithful love, his loving kindness, his care, um, his steadfast love. He wants to see good things for Israel and for his creation. And he's willing to sacrifice to make those good things come true. And he's consistently faithful to Israel and to his promises to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. Israel is constantly, with their sin, is constantly threatening God's covenant with them. But God is consistently finding ways to make that covenant work out despite Israel's sin. So Israel should start to look like God. They should be people who show love and faithfulness. Instead, we get verse 2. We get this terrible list of sins. So instead of love and faithfulness, we get swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, violence, bloodshed. Not love and faithfulness. This is what Israel looks like. Clearly, they don't know God. They have not been changed by God. It's a terrible, awful list. Israel is living out sin and destruction. If you say you love your spouse, but don't care about any of the things that they care about, how can you say you're loving them? If we say we love God, but we don't care about any of the things that he cares about and don't start to look like him, can we really say that we're loving God? And do we really know him? I find verse 3 interesting. Because of Israel's sin... Creation is being destroyed. God created Israel to care for the land and to rule over creation with love and faithfulness, the way God rules over us. Instead, instead of blessing and ruling the land like God commanded us to in Genesis 1, instead of that, we get destruction of the land. Sin leads to destruction. And that uh, works out in creation too. Live out God's character and God's blessing will go out from you in fruitfulness. Live out sin and you bring destruction to those around you, even to the creation. So Israel as a nation has failed to love God. And one sign of their failure is that Israel looks and acts nothing like God. A second sign involves the people that God chose to make himself known. So if the nation is falling apart, doesn't know and love God, at least the priests will, right? At least, hopefully, the priests. Or not. Verses 4 to 9 or 10, depending on your translation, is about the priests in Israel. Verse 4, here is my case against you, O priests. And God brings terrible charges against the priesthood in Israel. Awful, awful charges. First, the nation, the people, don't know God because the priests don't know God. The priests, whose sole purpose is to know God and to make God known. They don't know God. The whole reason you have priests is that they will know God, they will speak God's name, they will point out God's activity in the middle of the nation. They will point it out when it's hard to remember what God has done and hard to see what he's doing. That's what a priest is for. Know God, make God known. Instead, they don't know God. 
And so, they're incapable of making God known. The priests serve no purpose. They're going through the motions, they're helping the sacrifices happen, but they don't mean what they're saying and they don't believe it. It gets worse. Verses 7 and 8 are really, truly awful. Verse 7, there are more priests and more sin. The priests have increased and sin has increased. That's a bad sign. It should be the exact opposite, right? It should be if the priests are increasing, then sin is decreasing. Instead, we see more sin because of more priests. Verse 8 is kind of the low point for the priests. The priests are actually making a living off of people's sin. The priests are encouraging sin so that the people will bring them the sacrifices so that the priests will get more to eat. That would be like if we at Cole started saying, okay, every time you sin, bring us a couple bucks and you'll be good. And then we kind of started adding and saying, well, don't worry about your sin so much. God loves you. He cares for you. So don't worry about sin. He'll be fine with you as long as you bring us a couple bucks. Minor conflict of interest there, right? Or, go live your best life now and be sure to buy my book. Or, give a few dollars and God will multiply blessings to you. Again, there's a serious conflict of interest. Of course God loves you. But he wants you to be all that he made you to be. And sin destroys us. Sin is destructive. It makes us less than God created us to be. So it's not good enough to manage religious establishment while encouraging sin, or at least not discouraging it. That's what the priests were doing. Awful, awful condemnation. Later in Hosea, Hosea will make a similar point, as will other prophets like Amos and Micah. In Hosea 6.6, God says, I want your chesed love. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to know me. I don't want your burnt offerings. Your sacrifices and burnt offerings seem to be covering over your sin rather than you dealing with it and getting to know me and getting to love me. That's what God wants from us. The whole religious life of Israel was built by God so that we would know and love him. And the priests were using that religious life to get fat themselves and to kind of encourage sin in others. So everyone is failing here. No one is making God known. Israel, like the church in the New Testament, was called to be a priestly nation. God called the priests, but God called the whole nation of Israel to be priests in the world. God called them to bless the nations with God's life and presence and to intercede and present the world to God. The priests were failing, Israel's failing, nobody knows God, nobody is making God known. How can the priests function as priests when they don't know God, and how can Israel live as a priestly nation when they don't know God? God calls us to the same purpose. As the church, we are called to know God and to make God known, to be a blessing among the nations, to be the place where Christ dwells among, in his creation. Be the body of Christ, the first fruits of a new creation. 
We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And as a priesthood, we are called to mediate God's presence to the world, to make God known, to bless our neighbors, to bless all nations. If we know God and learn to look like him, we will reveal his character, which of course requires that we know him. So, uh, 10 to 19, Israel does not know God, so they can't make him known. What's the result? Well, the result is they don't bear any fruit. Or, even worse, they bear destructive fruit. Again, God chose Israel so that they could reveal his character and bless the nations. They don't reveal his character. They bring no blessing. And in verse 10, God says, They will eat, but not be satisfied. They will play the whore, but not multiply. So gifts that God has given, food and sex among them, are being so abused by the nation that they won't serve their purpose. What good is food if it doesn't satisfy us? Also, playing the whore is a sinful, destructive kind of sex. And God says that Israel will have lots of sex, but no kids. Now, in our sex-obsessed culture, maybe that doesn't sound so bad. Or maybe that even sounds good. But that just shows how depraved we are. If sex doesn't produce children, then the culture will die. Right? There's no next generation. To put it another way, if a culture is playing the whore and there are no kids, then the culture is actually actively killing itself. Sex, a gift that God gave us for life and to fill creation, as he told us to in Genesis 1, is actually being used for death. Again, sex and food are gifts that God gives us so we can bear fruit. Israel is abusing those gifts and they're leading to death. Verses 11 to 14 continue with these kinds of gifts. Wine, which is a gift from God, is used for destroying the understanding. Wood and walking staffs are being used as dumb, mute idols. Jose makes this joke about the walking staff. They, we inquire of the wood as an idol, and the walking staff speaks back to us. Obviously, walking staffs are not speaking back to Israel. Nature and the mountains and trees are being used as places where Israel can worship other gods. And verses 13 and 14 have more talk about sex and adultery. It's interesting, I think, to note how God and Hosea connect idolatry and adultery in this passage. Faithfulness to God leads to faithfulness to others. Faithlessness to God leads to faithlessness to others in our workplaces, in our marriages, um, and in all our relationships. Again, if we know God, we start to look like Him. We become faithful. When we turn away from God, we become faithless, unloving, destructive. Verses 13 and 14 make this point explicitly. You worship idols, so your daughters and your brides commit adultery. It's not even worth punishing your daughters and brides because you commit faithless adultery with temple prostitutes. Idolatry results in adultery. And adultery, as Hosea and the Proverbs and the Torah and Romans and other places point out, adultery leads to death. God has given us gifts in abundance 
so that we can see his goodness and bless others. And instead, Israel is using those gifts faithlessly and abusing them. It gets even worse. Verse 15, Hosea suggests that Israel will spread fruit, all right. It will just be bad fruit, destructive, sinful fruit. Verse 15, though you play the whore, O Israel, don't let Judah become guilty. Israel, the northern kingdom, was bad. This line suggests that their badness was in danger of spreading to others, like an adulteress spreading an STD. Israel's adulterous sin and destruction have the potential to spread and destroy other nations. Instead of being God's faithful and virtuous bride, Israel is living as an unethical prostitute, spreading disease and death. Israel doesn't know God. Israel doesn't look like God. Israel isn't making God known. And Israel is spreading, instead of good fruit, spreading bad fruit. It's not long before God will send them into exile and a large percentage of the northern kingdom will be completely wiped out. So, what hope do we get from a passage like this? We know that we don't look that much like God, that we could certainly be better at making him known, that we don't bear nearly the fruit that we could or should. Hosea is showing us that it's important for us to know God. And he's showing us some things that point out our failures. But what if we don't know him? Where's the hope? And if we're failing like Israel was, how is God going to be faithful and make us new? For us, as Christians, God's faithfulness, love, and our knowledge of God are centered on the person of Jesus Christ. We know what God is like because Jesus is God and acts like God. Jesus has made God known to us. And Jesus bears fruit in his life and is making us the kind of people who can bear fruit in our lives. First, Jesus looks like God. In John, Jesus tells us, look, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus really does look like God. He is faithful. He reveals the gracious faithfulness of God. He dies so that Israel's sin and all of creation's sin can be dealt with. God is so faithful to his covenant that even in the middle of Israel's adultery and sin, God sends his son to die to fulfill both God's and Israel's side of the covenant. I have no proper illustration for this kind of sacrifice. This would be like a husband marrying a woman. She commits adultery many times. Then the husband apologizes on her behalf to her lovers and heals them from their STDs and then dies of her STD so that she can live. It's an amazing picture of faithfulness, right? Okay, so the description is kind of disgusting. But it's an amazing picture of faithfulness. Except it's even better than that. We have no real way, or we would have no real way of illustrating faithfulness without Jesus, without him showing us the picture, this is what God is like. This is what faithfulness means. Jesus is not only faithful, he is loving. As we've seen, he cares for us so much that he will sacrifice himself to us. He cares for those in need. 
even to the point of giving up his life for the sake of his creation. Israel has been completely self-seeking. Jesus is completely self-giving. He lives out chesed love. He's a self-giving God. Not only does Jesus look like God, he is making us into the kind of people who will look like God also. His spirit is making us faithful and loving. Our lives and the lives of our community are becoming places of life, love, faithful obedience, and devotion to the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. As we get to know God in Jesus, we find that he is so much better than we thought. Like getting to know my wife, I'm finding she's so much better than I thought. She is way more and deeper and better than I would have thought 10 years ago. We joke with each other that, that we're not even the same people that we married. I mean, it's kind of true because we do change over time. But part of it is just that I know her so much better than I did 10 years ago. God doesn't change but his character is so rich and so deep and so infinite. I mean, so infinite, I guess that's repetitive, but he's, he's infinite. And so we can never reach the bottom of God. His character is so deep and wide and everything else that we're never going never gonna to discover all there is to discover. And it's always better and more rich than we could have imagined. So Jesus looks like God. Jesus also makes God known. He is the image of God, as Paul tells us in Colossians, and as the writer of Hebrews shows us. He reveals God more completely than anyone else ever could or did. So we see what God looks like in Jesus. It's like God is, what, a hundred dimensions or something, and we can see in three. Well, Jesus is those hundred dimensions condensed into those three. We can see God and see what he looks like and understand him uh, in a way that's understandable to our minds. Whereas God is so infinite, we'll never be able to fully plumb his depths. So we have a picture, we have an image of what God is like in the person of Jesus. Also, as we learn to live out chesed, love, and faithfulness, um, Jesus is making us into the kind of people that make God known to others. Again, this is only possible in Jesus. And finally, Jesus bears fruit. He bears good fruit, not bad fruit. Among Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male, female, all people, um, all nations are coming to know Christ such that more and more people from more and more nations are worshiping God now than ever before. Despite the problems with the church in Europe and in the West and the United States, more people worship God now than ever have. And as we stay plugged into Christ, Jesus tells us in John 15, we will bear fruit also. We are the, he is the vine, we are the branches. Almost got that wrong. The church throughout all nations and all history, and we just shared the community meal with all of them earlier in the service, all of them are participating to bear fruit, to be the fruitful people that God created humanity to be. Israel was fruitless. Their food and their sex bore no fruit. Actually, they bore fruit. Israel was infecting other nations with the virus of sin and the consequences of death like an adulterous woman. Jesus 
is fruitful. The way that God created humanity to be. He draws people from every tribe and tongue and nation to join him in exploring the great and glorious depths of the Father. He invites us into God's healing and transforming life so that all creation, even adulterous Israel, might be given the possibility of wholeness and shalom, peace and satisfaction and life. And so because of Jesus, we can look forward to the day when together we will all live out the life of God, when we will all know Him, when we will all look like Him, and we will all make Him known by worshiping together, and we will bear Him fruit by ruling with Him in the new heavens and in the new earth. Like the perfect husband, God has wooed us. He has stayed faithful to us despite our unfaithfulness. He has given us the grace and transforming love we needed for our healing and to be made new, and we will spend eternity married to him and discovering the infinite riches of his life and character. Let's pray. And so, Father, we praise you because you are making us new. You are making all things new. And you are making us into the kinds of individuals and the kind of human race that can and will fulfill all the purposes you always had for creation. We praise you that you stayed faithful to faithless people. You gave up your son for the self-seeking, pleasure-seeking nations who rebel against you. You love in ways that we could never love without you. You are good and powerful and loving. And we get distracted by so many other lovers. Make us faithful to you by the power of your spirit. Reshape us into the image of Jesus, who is your image here on earth. Use us to make you known and to bear fruit for you, so that all peoples and all creation will bow down before you one day. We are faithless. Make us faithful. We are unloving. But we are learning to love you and your Son whom you sent and the Spirit in us. In the name of our High Priest, Jesus, we pray. Amen.